Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. We have another saying that's just um, actually a teacher, Rodney Smith, likes to talk about the subtle aggression of self-improvement. This idea that we're always going to get better and better and, you know, transform ourselves. That's an aggressive act. Right. It needs to be balanced with self-acceptance. Yeah, I'll try my best. You know, I'll do my best. I'll put energy if it seems like a, a good, wise use of time. But at the end of the day, my self-worth isn't contingent on achieving those goals or on improving. You know, right now, in the full mess that I am, the broken human being that I am, I can fully love and accept myself right now in this moment. Nothing else needed. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Kristen, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Oh, I'm sure. Happy to be here. Yeah. Well, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I actually just finished reading your book, uh, Self-Compassion, The Proven Power of Being Kind to Yourself. And it's a book that I, you know, your work had been referenced in so many of the hundreds of books that I've read. And uh, you'd had been on my list for a long time to talk to. And I thought, you know, given everything that's going on in the world right now, uh, this was just really a relevant subject to actually talk about. Uh, But before we get into your work, uh, I want to start by asking what I think is a really fitting question, given your background, and that is what social group were you a part of in high school? And how did that influence and shape uh, who you've become and what you've ended up doing with your life? <laughs> That's a, a really interesting question. Okay, so I am uh, a California girl, grew up in, went to high school in the early 80s uh, when New Wave hit. So I was <laughs> part of the New Wave group. I had teased hair that stuck up. I wore lots of makeup. Um, and so I wasn't one of the popular girls, but I was in a clique of about five girls and we were kind of the alternative New Wave girls. So how did that influence my work? Um, You know, I suppose it influenced it in the sense that I've never really considered myself part of the mainstream, you know, and I've always kind of had a slightly, not that New Wave was so radical, really, but back in in 1980, it was radical. Um, And so I suppose in that way, I've never really considered myself part of the mainstream, doing things the standard way. And perhaps that influenced my willingness to look at self-compassion as a construct in psychology, even though it hadn't been studied before, because I guess I was comfortable being a little bit out of the mainstream. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, that tendency to go against the grain is an interesting paradox because, you know, as a culture, we reward and we encourage it when it works. But when somebody does it, we discourage it. So, you know, how do you how do you resolve that? Because I think that, you know, creative people in particular, like many of the people listening to the show have these things that they want to do with their lives. And, you know, they resist that temptation. I know this from having grown up in the Indian culture. It's like this constant battle because, you know, I was just writing about this this morning about for the fact that I hadn't thought about this in probably a decade. But the fact that my college admissions essay was about culture clash and creativity. And here I am sort of, you know, reliving <laughs> that again. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, I, and I'm sorry, what's your question then? <laughs> well, I guess, you know, like, how do you resolve that paradox? Like, I think, cause the thing is like, we're so conditioned by the world around us not to go against the grain, despite the fact that we have this strong desire to. Right. So I guess that's not a, a paradox as much as just a, a block to acting creatively. Yeah. Um, or, I mean, not just creatively, but in, in terms of any pursuit that is out of the ordinary. Right. Well, you know, I mean, I think you have to be able to take risks and it's true. It's not always rewarded. So, so in my career, like for instance, um, I'm still an associate professor and I'm not a full professor, partly because most of my, even though I have many, many publications, I didn't do the standard things you're supposed to as an academic, like get big grants and, you know, chair APA, American Psychological Association committees, because I felt it was a waste of my time. So I didn't do it, you know, and so there are consequences to that. Um, but I suppose you just have to have your values and make your choices. You know, my, my, my value is to help alleviate suffering and I only spend my time and doing things that I think are going to be effective toward doing that. So, what? you know, is it resolving a conflict? I guess for me, it's never really been a conflict because I, maybe it's no. because I was a new waiver at heart. I never was even tempted to just go the completely traditional route. Yeah. What role did your parents play in all of that? I mean, did they give you specific advice about making your way in the world or guide you in any way in terms of what might be potential career options or career paths? No, no, not, not really. Um, so, you know, my father wasn't really around. I'm, uh, you know, he left when I was two. And so my mother raised me and my brother alone. Um, and so my mother was a secretary, you know, and we didn't have a lot of money. Um, it's interesting that I, I, I'm writing this new book, Fierce Self-Compassion for Women, which we can talk about in a bit. But I'm talking, I, I was talking in the book about my own relationship with gender. And I think it played a role in that I have a very clear memory being this new wave girl <laughs> in Westlake High School. And, you know, I, I was, if it didn't sound too vain, I was a pretty attractive young girl. And, you know, I was just kind of blossoming and boys were beginning to notice me. And I remember very clearly, I remember the exact moment I was walking down the halls of my school and I thought, you know, I've got a choice of two ways to make it in the world. I can either try to make it by being pretty, <laughs> you know, and being popular and having people like me and maybe getting a good husband and that whole route that's offered to women. Or I can make my way in the world by being smart. <laughs> and I chose smart. <laughs> it was because, I, you know, I was doing very well in my classes. And so I think I, in a way, I've never left school. You know, I got a full ride scholarship to the University of uh, California, Los Angeles, and then I got it accepted into UC Berkeley for graduate school. And then I got a job as a, as an assistant professor at, at University of Texas at Austin. And so that really never came from the outside. No one ever really encouraged it in me, believe it or not. I think it was just a judgment I had come up with 
that I didn't want to play by traditional gender roles. And I knew I was smart and this is some, this was a gift I had and this was the path I was going to take in my life. And then it wasn't until later that I was able to integrate, uh, you might say, my quest for knowledge with more of a spiritual dimension, which I really think my work uh, in self-compassion is. Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, that, that period in particular, like junior high, all the way to high school, um, when we blossom in any way at all is, is such a period of like, you know, deep validation seeking. And, uh, you know, like, and I know that, that, you know, part of self-compassion, you know, that you've talked about it is, uh, not having that. I mean, particularly with kids, like what have you seen with parents and, and kids? Like, what would you tell parents who are listening to this about dealing with that moment in their childhood, you know, their children's lives when their children go from becoming these nice, kind kids to horrible human beings because they're <laughs> teenagers. Cause I know I was like, I thought my parents were the worst people on the planet for probably about three years. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, so a, a lot of my work has actually been centered on differentiating self-esteem and self-compassion. And I, and I think what you're talking about is relevant here. You know, so self-compassion is treating yourself um, kindly, kind of with unconditional acceptance. Um, it doesn't mean doing whatever you want. It also means alleviating suffering. So it means changing behaviors that are causing suffering either to yourself or others. Um, whereas self-esteem is about, um, you know, Achieving, doing well, being liked, being popular, being pretty, whatever it is you're basing your, your values on. Uh, and I think sometimes parents can fall into the trap. I mean, either they fall into the trap of pushing their children so hard that they don't realize how they're impacting their child's sense of self-worth. It's very important that we have a sense of self-worth. Um, so they, they may fall too far into that side of, you know, I just have to, I can't criticize my child for anything because it'll, it'll lower their self-esteem. We've had that problem. Uh, or they're too critical, <laughs> which creates problems that need to be sorted out with a, a therapist later on. Um, but I think the thing that self-compassion gives people, if, if you give people the understanding that they are unconditionally worthy, the bottom line is even if you fail, or you act surly, or, you know, whatever you do, the bottom line is I love and accept you as you are. But because I care about you, I'm going to draw boundaries. I'm going to set guidelines. I'm going to have rules. I'm going to have goals for you because I care about you and I want you to achieve. And I think having that, that stance is kind of the middle ground. Um, I would really recommend that, that, that parents think about their child's level of uh, self-compassion, again, it's not just about acceptance, it's also about well-being, um, as opposed to, you know, the level of self-esteem. But also, also think, considering seriously, so what you say to your child does affect them. And if you just try to motivate them by tearing them to shreds, that will be counterproductive in the long run. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, you know, I remember one line in particular struck me in the book. You said that children often internalize a parent's critical voice and carry that with them throughout their lives. Although yeah. no parent wants his or her child to suffer, many believe that discipline must be hard hitting in order to work. And, you know, like I look back at my conversations with my mother, many of which are incredibly critical and many of which are to still this day critical. It's kind of like, hey, nice to see you as well, mom. <laughs> like we start yeah. out with some sort of criticism. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, I wonder when you get to adult life and that, you know, we talked a little bit about therapy, like how do you undo 
that voice that you've been carrying around in your head from your parents' criticism. Uh, because I never realized, like it took me six months of therapy to connect the dots between my relationship problems and the challenge I had with my relationship with my mother. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. So welcome to the club, right? <laughs> Most of us, <laughs> you know, a lot of our neuroses are related to challenges we had when we were growing up. Well, the nice thing about self-compassion, one of the reasons I'm such a strong believer in it is uh, in many ways, it's a way of reparenting yourself, right? So we have these voices in our head and these voices in our head, they come from our, from our parents, but not, but not just our parents. They come from, you know, the kids who bullied you in middle school or the culture that tells you you need to look a certain way to be, you know, good enough. So there are all these external voices in our head that we get, that we internalize, many of which are not healthy. And so what we're doing with self-compassion is we're, we're paying conscious attention to how we relate to ourselves. Instead of it just being kind of the default mode that we learn without thinking about it, we actually think, well, how, how do I relate to myself? Is this the way I want to be relating to myself? Am I meeting my needs? And once we make that whole process conscious, and you know, if we need something, we try to meet that need. If we're feeling badly, we try to comfort ourselves. If we need to you know, motivate a change, we do that out of care as opposed to criticism. Once we make that change, we actually can change our attachment patterns. There's research showing that one of the things you can do with self-compassion as an adult is give yourself uh, what they call adult earned secure attachment, which means that you feel worthy and you, and you trust that your needs will be met. Not from your parents, maybe they didn't meet your needs, but once you can meet your needs yourself, then you can learn to trust that. So it's really right. a way of, of, in many ways, reprogramming what we, the messages we are giving with when, given when we we're young and being conscious about the messages we want to give ourselves. Well, it's funny you mentioned the word pro reprogramming because I was thinking about this in terms of sort of the three layers of programming that we get, right? Parents, peers, and society. Yeah. Uh, and of course, our education system. Now, you being an educator, mm -hmm. uh, you know, growing up in Indian culture, the thing that is made very clear from the start is that education is a priority and you are not to come home with anything less than an A. You know, right. like when we would hear about our friends who got their report cards put on fridges and our parents were like, yeah, great. You get a roof over your head and a meal every night. Uh, you know, that's just the expectation. But it seems like there's also a downside to this. And you're an educator at, you know, arguably a very prestigious school. And I was a UC Berkeley undergrad. So I know the kind of pressure that goes into places like that. My sister and I say, like, there's no way in hell we would get into these schools now. And I wonder, yeah. you know, as an educator, what you've seen as um, the impact of a lack of self-compassion and what is the role that self-compassion is going to play in, like needs to play in education. Yeah, I mean, so it is a shame. So for instance, that the students who come to me complaining about their grade are the ones who got the A minus, you know, not, <laughs> you know, the, the, the perfectionist. And I think it does create a tremendous amount of pressure. Now, having said that, you know, there is some reality check in that, that I agree. I would never have gotten my tenure position at UC, UT Austin, you know, nowadays because the stakes keep going up and up. And so, you know, there is the reality of what the type of grades or what, what you need to get the type of job you want. And that has to be dealt with. And that's why we can, you know, motivate ourselves out of kindness because we want to achieve our goals because we care. Um, at the, at the other, at the other side of it, it says nothing about our self-worth. I think that's really so important that yes, we want to get, you know, maybe you want your kids to get A's because you want them to be able to get into a good college because you care about them. But if they don't, it doesn't mean they're any less worthy or that you love them any less. <laughs> you know, and so kind of distinguishing the fact of whether or not you're a worthy, a worthy, valuable human being and you're lovable 
from are you able to achieve your goals? And, and what we know from the research really unequivocally is that care, kindness and caring is a better motivator. It helps you achieve your goals more than shame and self-criticism or, or criticism of others, right? So the goals are still the same either way. It's a shame that we have to get straight A's, but if we do, so be it. That's the way the world is. But how are you going to reach your goals? You know, you're going to, you're going to be, you're, you're going to have a better fighting chance motivating yourself or your kids with, with kindness than you are with criticism. Actually, shame and criticism undermines these goals often. I mean, what they can do is they can light a fire underneath someone and get them to really pay attention and work hard. But you can also light, light a fire under someone and get them to pay attention and work hard with, with care and kindness as well. It's actually, it's actually more effective because criticism it creates all these counterproductive things like fear of failure, performance anxiety, right? Which actually the tendency to want to procrastinate, all these things really undermine your ability to achieve your goals. This is a weird question, but, you know, obviously grades play a role in education. If you were to restructure this from, you know, a standpoint of, okay, how do we infuse, you know, the ability to have self-compassion? Because at the end of the day, like, you know, as I mentioned to you, in culture I grew up in, it was, you know, the pressure to get good grades was so intense. And this also makes me wonder, you know, as I was saying, you know, before we hit record here, you know, I was recently on this Netflix documentary about Indian matchmaking, which my roommates made me wake up at one in the morning to watch because it just dropped on Netflix, like, you know, at midnight. And going back to it, like what struck me as I was watching some of the other episodes it was watching the matchmaker and how so often everything was about looking at a list of accomplishments on a resume, you know, basically what David Brooks would call resume values as opposed to eulogy values. It was like accomplishment mattered more than character. And so what that made me wonder was when you look at self-compassion research, like how have you seen this differ across cultures? Right. Well, so, you know, there's not a ton of cross-cultural research. There is some, which certainly shows that levels of self-compassion vary by culture, right? Some cultures encourage it more than others. For instance, a place like Thailand, they have pretty high levels of self-compassion because Buddhism is, is in, you know, kind of part of the culture. People go on retreat, they, they meditate, they take it very seriously. Um, other cultures like China, it's not just an East-West thing. China has very low levels of self-compassion because they encourage self-criticism so much. Um, the UK, I don't think there's been much self-compassion research in India, interestingly. So I don't know a lot about it. Um, so yeah, culture influences how much people, how much self-compassion people have. Although there does seem to be a universal beneficial effect of self-compassion in the sense that taking the stance toward oneself, at least from what we know so far. I mean, there's not a lot of research, so I don't want to be too hard and fast about it. But it seems that even in places with low level, where self-compassion isn't the norm, those individuals in those cultures who have more self-compassion have better mental health, for instance. They're less depressed, they're happier with their lives, they're more satisfied. So um, it, it does seem to be to tap into something universal. And I think, I think it makes sense because compassion and love, these are, these are universal values, right? And I think what's so sad about what you're describing is when people place all their values in just your resume and your accomplishments, it leaves out the, the, more, the most important things like, you know, how connected are you? How much love do you have in your life? How kind are you? You know, how, how, how much do you help other people? Um, and, and that is a shame because 
you know, we've got people running the world with a lot of resume accomplishments and our world is dying because of global warming. So what did that buy us, you know? So. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. So that, uh, you know, it's interesting. So I think for me, the next layer of sort of our programming is so you've got, you know, parents, we've got education and peer groups. Like peer groups is one of those is really fascinating ones to me, which is why I started with the social group question, uh, because I wasn't popular in high school. I was definitely far from cool, Uh, you know, and it it was one of those things where, like, I, I think that that made me feel that it's like, oh, having a girlfriend in high school is just not, it was like, oh, that's never going to happen. It's just not realistic. It's not like I didn't like girls in high school, but, uh, and yet, you know, like I said, it goes back to that period of, of sort of validation seeking. So what role does self-compassion play during that period? And like, how do our peer groups affect our own self-compassion? Yeah. And so again, you know, peer groups 
really impact uh, our level of self-esteem. In fact, peer approval is one of the most important sources of self-esteem. And by the way, it's not how much your good friends like you, it's how much like other kids in school or other people in wor- at work, people who don't know you very well, and you actually don't really know very well their opinions of you. It's a very kind of lousy source of information. We put a lot of our self-esteem, we base a lot of our self-esteem on what other people think of us. Um, so self-compassion really, um, it doesn't come from peer approval. I mean, uh, so you might say that if you have very critical peers and very critical parents, you might be low in self-compassion. But the way we get self-compassion isn't from external sources. Self-compassion is an inside job, right? So yeah, if we have, if we have supportive parents and friends, it's going to make the more fertile ground for us to have self-compassion, to accept ourselves as we are, to be kind to ourselves, to be supportive to ourselves. But it's really not contingent on outside forces, right? And that's one of its amazing strengths is the fact that it's not contingent on success. It's not contingent on other people liking us. It, it comes from connecting to the larger whole that's even bigger than any one particular group of people and just really understanding that as a conscious human being who lives, who breathes, who suffers, I'm intrinsically worthy of care and support. And so it's a much more stable source of self-worth. You know, it doesn't fluctuate nearly as much. Um, and even when you're really in bad conditions, you can still, you know, and I'm not saying it's going to be easy, but you can, it's theoretically possible and actually it happens if, if you're, if you've experienced at it. Even in bad conditions, you can still give yourself unconditional love and support and kindness, regardless of how other people are treating you. And, and it really frees you from being so dependent on the opinions of others. So I, I think the the other sort of the, the what I call the fifth layer, because, you know, this whole conversation is giving me an idea of, the, you know, a blog post for about the five layers of our social programming, the other one finally being culture and culture is so broad, not just, you know, culture in terms of ethnicity or set or that, but like the media we consume, the movies we watch. I mean, particularly today with, you know, the prevalence of social media in our lives, um, like what are the negatives and positives of this? Can you control the culture around you and, and the things that you consume in order to influence your self-compassion? Because I feel like if you look at social media, it's pretty easy to su- suddenly feel a complete lack of self-compassion most days. Like as an author, I can tell you when I see a, you know another author friend, it's like, oh, their book hit the New York Times bestseller list. God, I suck at this. <laughs> you know, like that's that, that sort of self-criticism kicks in. Um, but yeah, I wonder. And then not only that, like if you look at the message of popular culture, right? You look at TV shows like Entourage where the sort of standard is, oh, this guy is famous. He's rich. Uh, Heather Haverleski wrote about this in, uh, you know, one of her books uh, where she wrote an essay about sort of, you know, what, like that there's no better version of you waiting in the future. But yet to me, that's like so prevalent and embedded into every aspect of all our messaging and pop culture. I mean, even, you know, something like this podcast, right? We expose people to models of possibility Mm-hmm. Uh, people who are where they're not. And I've had people who literally emailed me and said, I can't listen to this anymore because these people are so amazing. It makes me feel worse about my own life. Uh-huh. And I said, I understand. I can relate to that. Yeah. So, um, you know, we, we have we have a saying in, in the self-compassion world and self-compassion training, which is the goal of practice is simply to become a self-compassionate mess. Okay. <laughs> Just a compassionate mess. That's your only goal. That actually becomes your goal. And that's an achievable goal. 
right? You, you, not being a mess is actually not an achievable, achievable goal because we're all human beings. Controlling our culture is not an achievable goal. Yeah, I mean, it's probably wise to, you know, try to be careful of what you consume in terms of media. And if you care about yourself, you aren't going to consume things that are really causing you pain. But really, the ultimate goal is just to be compassionate in how you relate to your pain. And that can be done at any moment. And what happens is when you start valuing the compassion more than the achievements or more than, you know, what people think of you or, or more than, you know, getting it right, then you have that, you have that resource to kind of uh, draw from it in any moment. And really what that resource is, is, is love. So, so there are three components of self-compassion. Um, one is the kindness that we've been talking about, just like love, but there's also um, mindfulness. The ability to be aware of what hap- what's happening so we aren't so lost in what's happening. Mindfulness is incredibly important when dealing with other people's reactions and dealing with the media. So that we kind of rise above it. We're kind of aware of, oh yeah, this is the media giving us these messages, but I don't have to believe that. Um, and then the third component is common humanity, just recognizing that we're all in this together. We're all part of this larger interdependent whole. It's the idea that we're all separate selves you know, that are uninfluenced by the people is a complete lie. It's an illusion, right? We are all part of a larger interdependent whole and not just people. I mean, the planet, right? All, all conscious beings and some people even argue, well, you know, everything, if you really break it down, you know, we're all just kind of quarks flashing in and out of existence, right? And so when you take that larger view of interdependence and you combine it with mindful awareness of what's arising, so we aren't, we aren't um, held captive by our thoughts, and then you bring love and kindness into the mix, then you really have all you need. It's loving, connected presence, you know, and, and that's where we draw our, um, our sense of happiness. That's where we draw our sense of self-worth. It's something that goes with us wherever we go, no matter how we're faring that day, good or bad, it can accompany us through death. It can accompany us, you know, through aging and losing our looks and, and all, all of the vicissitudes of life, you know, and, and if that becomes of your goal to cultivate loving, connected presence, regardless of circumstances, that's enough. You know, it doesn't mean you don't pay attention to the other stuff because again, you care about yourself and you don't want you, you, you to suffer, but it's, it's a much better place to invest our energy and time than getting things right. Yeah. Well, I, I think that it, what's interesting to me is, is that the, you know, work that has been done by the world of self-development by many of the guests here on the show who do Amazing work that has made you know profound changes in numerous people's lives. Also, on the counter narrative, ha- has this other narrative of there's this gap between who you are and where you want to be, and that gap just feels eternal because of this. And so, what it makes me wonder is, um, and this is a question that's been on my mind for a while, as you know, having finished two books and, and talking to my friend Ryan Holiday about this sort of illusion of the next level, is that can you have a coexistence of both fulfillment and ambition? Uh, yes, I think you can. So, so I like to talk about the yin and the yang of self-compassion. So the yin of self-compassion, that is the self-acceptance. That's the loving, connected presence. That's when we can just be with ourselves as we are. You know, that's when we're the compassionate mass. That's, you know, it's kind of a more just receptive way of being in the world. Um, but there's also the yang of self-compassion. And that's when we take action to achieve our goals. Sometimes we need to take action to protect ourselves. Like if you're, you know, I don't know about your mother, but maybe if you have a mother that's 
too controlling, maybe you need to draw some boundaries to be happy. You know, you may, maybe you say, I'm sorry about this. That's not okay for you to talk to me that way, right? You know, to the extent that you can, drawing boundaries, protecting yourself, that also helps with, you know, sexism, racism, all those sorts of boundary violations. Um, then we also have to meet our needs, right? So really asking ourselves, well, what do I need? And so, so one of the some, one of the problems is sometimes what we think we need isn't what we really need. We may think we need money and status and fame. Um, that may not at all be what we really need. That may not actually make us happy. It may make us happy temporarily, but what really makes us happy? And so just even asking that question, what really makes me happy? And then taking action to do that. Um, but also motivating ourselves to reach our goals. I mean, again, it's it's a really important part of caring for ourselves is setting goals, but then the goals need to be realistic. And again, the goals need to be something that ultimately sustain us and make us happy as opposed to driving us crazy, you know, more, 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 which perfectionists do. Um, and, and so the, 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 there's a yin and yang element all the time in everything. There's an, an accepting, there's a being with, and there's also an acting on. And both are constantly there and they need to both be constantly there because if you don't have any young energy, your self-acceptance becomes complacency. Um, But if you're all young and no yin, then your action becomes striving. You know, we we have another saying that's just um, actually a teacher, Rodney Smith, likes to say, talk about the subtle aggression of self-improvement. This idea that we're always going to get better and better and, you know, transform ourselves. That's an aggressive act. Right. It needs to be balanced with self-acceptance. Yeah, I'll try my best. You know, I'll do my best. I'll put energy if it seems like a, a good, wise use of time. But at the end of the day, my self-worth isn't contingent on achieving those goals or on improving. You know, right now, I'm in the full mess that I am, the broken human being that I am. I can fully love and accept myself right now in this moment. Not, nothing else needed. Yeah, I think for creative people in particular, they feel so like I, it took me a long time to kind of disconnect my self-worth from the results of my work or, you know, my identity being so tied up in my work because I, I realized like, wow, this is a recipe for disaster. Like if I base my self-worth on something as, you know, uh, inconsistent as book sales, like my self-worth will fluctuate with those book sales. Exactly. It does. And it does. That's what self-esteem does. And so really yeah. self-compassion is, is an alternative source of self-worth. It doesn't come from judging yourself positively or achieving your goals. Your self-worth simply comes from the fact that you are a conscious human being who suffers and is intrinsically worthy of kindness and compassion. Just like every single baby born on this earth is intrinsically worthy of kindness and compassion, right? And especially from ourselves. Now, other people, you know, I may I may choose where to invest my compassion and energy to other people, but in terms of myself, I'm not like God, you know. So, in terms of the love that opens inward, um, you know, we we can we don't need to be any different than we are to be fully worthy of our love and kindness and compassion. Now, having said that, so that's why we also need the yin and yang. We also need both. If we use that as an excuse for complacency and we don't act, um, at least try to change the things that we can so that we we don't cause so much suffering to ourselves and others, then of course we're going to do that, right? And the self-acceptance, I'm sure you've heard this famous quote from Carl Rogers, the curious paradox is that the more I accept myself, the more I can change. So the two actually work hand in hand. And that's why, again, we know that self-compassion actually uh, encourages self-improvement 
it encourages motivation to make changes. It encourages things like repairing past mistakes we've made, even though its foundation is self-acceptance. If you want to take it farther enough, it really points to the, the illusion of separate self and it points to the illusion of a separate ego. You know, if you really take this path far enough and, and self-compassion is rooted in contemplative practice, um, it really wakes you up to the, to the, the realization that the sense of separate self is an illusion created by thought. And self-compassion actually helps us hold that illusion with kindness so that we don't take it so seriously. And then we can operate. It, it's, it's a different, it's a completely different perspective than we normally carry around with us in, in everyday life. So what impact did being raised by a single mother and having your father leave have on your own self-compassion? Um, well, you know, I was lucky. So my, my mother, I was very securely attached. My mother, you know, was really met my needs. She was very, we were very close and she was very supportive. So I never really had any self-worth issues generally. Um, now my father leaving led to, you know, some relationship issues, which I talk about in, in my book, you know, that, that, that in the domain of romantic relationships, I think I was less secure. Um, I made a, a more, you know, poor choices because I was looking to get that sort of validation from a man and that support from a man that I never really received um, from my father. So, uh, but I, th I think that the, the fact that my mother was able to give me an overall sense of secure attachment and worth is what allowed me to use self-compassion as a way to deal with my wounds within the more limited sphere of relationships. You know, and I also believe that we have very, we have different parts. You know, not only is the self an illusion, the idea that we are a single self is an illusion. The, the reality is we have lots of different parts to us that come out in different contexts that, you know, sometimes are diametrically opposed to each other. So we aren't even one particular single way. Mm -hmm. uh, how has your research, the work that you've done, uh, changed the relationships with people in your life? Because, you know, my, my mom constantly jokes with me that she has to always worry that anything that comes out of her mouth is now potential for a blog post or something that's going to go in a book. Right, right. Um, yeah, so, so, uh, you know, it's true. I, I do. I do tell a lot of personal stories in my books as well. Um, some people, you know, I haven't had anyone say anything negatively about it, anything negative about it. But I'm sure, you know, like I talk about my father in, in my first book, and I'm sure, you know, he probably wishes things were different. But he, I think, respects my right to write about my own experience. So, um, you know, for, for me, like for me, the research is actually almost secondary to the practice of self-compassion. It started for me as a practice. It still is primarily a practice. I research it. I actually research it primarily because I want to um, convince other people that this is empirically supported, that it's not just woo-woo talk. <laughs> and so that hopefully will give them confidence in trying to practice it. But ultimately, it's about the practice. And so self-compassion is really just, it's a way of life. You know, it's not some separate thing. It's just a way of approaching everything in life. So what that makes me wonder, you know, I've, I've talked to numerous psychologists and therapists here, uh, is, you know, and I've had friend, friends who are coaches and like, we'll sit down and I'll be telling them about something and they will go into coaching mode. 
And I'm like, just shut up and listen to me. I don't want your advice. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, and I wonder, do you do you find it difficult to turn off that sort of lens through which you see the world based on your your research when you have normal interactions with people? Well, I mean, because one of the important parts of so so, for instance, in the in the training program we developed, the mindful self compassion program, we actually teach compassionate listening, and compassionate listening means no advice giving, right? Um, so. I really don't like the idea that, you know, if people come to me, like just giving advice, giving advice, I actually don't like to give advice. I don't think it's necessarily compassionate to give advice. I will teach people skills and tools to have self-compassion so they can give themselves their own advice, <laughs> you know, but I'm not a, I'm not a coach. I don't, I don't really play that role and I'm, I'm uncomfortable with that role because, you know, who, who, how do I know what you need? You're the only one who knows what you need, you know, but I'll, mm-hmm. I'll teach you some practices that will help you figure out what you need, <laughs> but I'm not going to tell, I'm not going to tell you it. So, yeah. um, you know, I don't, I don't tend to do that so much with my friends. I mean, occasionally I do, but I've really learned the hard way that my friends, what they really want is just my unconditional support and presence and love. Um, and they can figure it out on their own. Well, let's talk about emotional resilience. I I think that that is particularly relevant given what many people are dealing with right now. Um, But you know, before we get into emotional resilience and and sort of navigating you know job markets and all that stuff, there's something you said that really struck me and said, you know, you remember that rumination on negative thoughts and emotions stems from the underlying desire to be safe, even though these brain patterns may be counterproductive. We can still honor them for trying diligently, so to keep us out of the jaws of the crocodile. And it made me think of an experience I had uh, of a breakup that just was made a mess of my head. It was, it was like the rumination was endless and it was kind of like every day I would replay every moment and be like, oh, if I changed this, would this have turned out differently? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I literally hashed this out for six months in therapy and I was like, wow, no matter how many times I replay this, the outcome is still the same. Right. Um, how do you, like, how do you break that rumination cycle? And because I remember like, I, I think right after that breakup happened, I drank like, you know, three fourths of a bottle of whiskey and smoked two packs of cigarettes in a day. And I went to a doctor and she said, you're punishing yourself. Uh-huh. Yeah. So how do you yeah. break that cycle? Yeah, well, so that's, you know, so one of the most powerful um, outcomes of self-compassion is less rumination. Because with rumination, again, it's like we're, we're just, we're stuck because we can't accept that something that we didn't want to happen, happened. And we when we do think that, you know, that feels scary, it feels scary not to be in control. And the rumination is like a valiant attempt to give us a sense of control, right? Again, because we want to be safe. It's not because we're bad people. It's just the natural desire to be safe. And so what, so what you can, you can use self-compassion in many ways to break the cycle. Probably the easiest thing to do, or at least one of the first things you can do is tune into the pain of rumination. You know, it doesn't feel good to ruminate. It doesn't feel good to be stuck on the same thought going around and around in your head. And so you can be kind to yourself because of that pain. Right? You can bring in the three components of self-compassion. First, you're just mindful of the, the pain involved in rumination. Remember that, hey, you aren't alone. You know, First of all, this is partly the way the human brain is designed, but you certainly are not the first person to, to ruminate after a breakup. You know, This is part of the experience. <laughs> Nothing wrong with you. It's something abnormal. This is just, it happens, you know? And then just kind of speaking to yourself like you speak to a good friend, you know, hey, this is so tough. I'm so sorry. You know, how can I help in this moment? I'm here for you. Right. And just making that shift in perspective itself tends to break the rumination. One, because you aren't so lost in the difficult thoughts. When you you take the perspective of a friend toward yourself, you automatically jump out of being lost in the thoughts and you're taking an outside perspective. 
Uh, and but it's really the warmth that makes the biggest difference. You know, when we can feel the warmth, then we can relax. And part of this is just physiological, you know, rumination is usually tied to sympathetic nervous system activation, you know, fight or flight, cortisol and adrenaline. A warmth is tied to parasympathetic response. We calm down, our heart rate becomes more variable, you know, release oxytocin and opiates, we feel safer. And so just physiologically, when bringing in the warmth, especially if, if we add some touch, like a simple gesture of putting your hand on your body in some way that feels comforting and soothing, that alone can break the rumination cycle. It's not rocket science. Yeah. So the thing is, I think even in rumination, what, at least in my rumination on breakups and any other traumatic experience has always been looking for whatever I did that was my, like, why is this my fault? I think is the, the default narrative that goes on in my Mm -hmm. head. Now, I don't know if that's common to most people in rumination, um, but sure. like, what is, like, what is that tendency? Like, why do we have that tendency to look for where we're at fault in things that don't turn out the way we want? Because like, if you get fired from a job, to some degree, there must be a role that you played in that. I know, because I've been fired from all of my jobs. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, well, it's simple. It's a desire for control. If it was your fault, then theoretically, it was under your control. And theoretically, if you could have just done things differently, the bad thing wouldn't have happened and you'd be safe, you know? And so it's it's just the desire for control. And of, of course we want control. Of course we want to be safe. This is the ego. This is what the ego does. But, you know, the truth is we have very little control. We've got some influence. You know, we can make a difference. There are things we can try to do, um, but we certainly don't have control. You know, because the, the self, the self that thinks it has control is an illusion, right? So we're, we're the combination of our genes, our our hormones, what we ate that day, our parenting, our upbringing, our culture, you know, the last thought we just had 10 seconds ago. All these factors are continually arising and changing and in a a very complex interaction to create moment to moment what arises in our mind and the decisions we make. There is no separate self that has control. And that scares the ego to death because, it, you know, the ego is afraid of dying. I mean, if you really take this deep enough, that's what it, it kind of all boils down to is this, the illusion of the separate self, the desire for control, the desire for survival. You know, you'd probably, probably call it, you know, fear of death. Um, but it's, if you really look at it, that that's what's happening. And so the reason self-compassion can break that cycle is, you know, it's like, okay, well, you're you're a mess and you don't have control and that's okay. I love you anyway. You know, <laughs> you aren't you aren't really real and that's okay. Love is here anyway. You know, it, it doesn't it doesn't require. There's no set of requirements to have self compassion. It's just there. We just need to tap into it. Well, I think that makes a perfect segue to talking about the situation that we're in now, in which I think we're all kind of realizing, wow, we're out of control, and yet. You know, even though we're out of control, people are suffering. You know, we can't argue about the reality of people suffering. Like, I, I feel like, you know, I'm incredibly privileged. Like, I don't have to go to a job that requires me to be somewhere where I could potentially die or be exposed to this virus. Um, it just, like, you know, Richard Haas, the economist, wrote a, a book called World in Disarray. And, it, you know, now it seems like that is very much the case. So how, how do you deal, like, what role do you think self-compassion can play in getting us out of this mess? Well, the first role it has is in accepting that we are in this mess, right? So if we spend all our time figuring out how do I get out of this, how I get out of this, and we don't open to the pain that is here right now, 
then that pain's not going away. And in fact, we're resisting it and it'll probably just get worse, right? And so we self-compassion, the first step is opening to, wow, this is really hard. I feel lonely. I feel terrified. I feel grief. You know, I feel overwhelmed. And, you know, all those painful emotions we can turn toward, right? And especially with the yin self-compassion, we can hold it with loving, connected presence. We can hold our pain. You know, the, the, the heart is infinitely large. The heart can hold any amount of pain because there's no limit to how big our heart is, right? The limit is just a thought, but actually love can hold any, anything. And so we can hold our pain with, with love and connection and, and presence and be there for ourselves and then we can start to, to calm down a little bit. Uh, and then we can we can ask ourselves, well, what, well, what can I do? You know, this, there may not be a lot we can do. We can try our best to do whatever we can to meet our needs, but we won't be able to control it. You know, and the reality is that we're all going to, you know, at some point, we're all going to die. I mean, it's, it's not to be negative, but I mean, this, this is the reality of, of human life. And we don't even want to like... <laughs> open to that reality. It's like we, we want to somehow have this permanent existence. Um, and that's not the way things work. We have very limited control. We, we try our best to, you know, m- make the best decisions we can to be as healthy as we can. We try to alleviate our suffering. And at the end of the day, probably our best option is to turn toward what is with great love and kindness and acceptance and we actually learn to rest our awareness. And it's kind of, I know it's a vague turn, but you learn to identify not so much with the contents of your experience, whether they're painful or frightening or sad or whatever it is. Um, you learn to start to identify with the loving, connected presence that's holding your experience. And that becomes more salient to you. And loving, connected presence is, is a positive emotion. It feels good. It feels safe. It feels connected. And so you're really, you're moving from what's happening. You're focused to be on what's happening. How can I control what's happening? How can I make things different than they are? You're moving your focus to how am I relating to what's happening? And then that's a place where we have a lot more room to play. And it's a lot more effective also. So that, you know, uh, raises sort of two final questions. You know, so as, as you were saying that, I was thinking about the fact that you know, somebody who like why grief is so relative. So for example, I respond to a breakup like a parent died and a person who has a parent died doesn't respond nearly as horribly as I did to a breakup. Right. Um, why is that? Like, and, and can we actually mitigate that? Yeah. I mean, so there, there's a ton of reasons why that is right. In terms of what's, what's most important to you, how it relates to your sense of self, um, how much, how threatening is the event? All, all these things are going to differ between individuals and between situations. Um, and so, you know, in terms of mitigating that, you know, you, you can't change your genes or your personality, or your family history, right? So probably the reason I don't, you know, I don't know your history, but I'm sure there's a lot of reasons in your personal history that lead to you taking breakups in a particularly hard way. There's no need to change that. There's no need to, to fix yourself, you know, but if you relate to that pattern with kindness, with acceptance, um, with this kind of helpful attitude of, okay, well, I'm here for you. How can I support you through this? Then, you know, in a way, it doesn't even matter so much if you take it hard or not. You're, you probably aren't going to change that personality. You might, you might make a little dent, 
But as long as you, you know, so for instance, for myself, after 20 years of self-compassion practice, I still basically have the same personality. Um, I tend to get very reactive, you know, I, I kind of biologically, my nervous system is wired to be reactive, despite how much mindfulness and meditation and self-compassion practice I do. Um, and, you know, really, although I, tr- I try as much as I can to be present and not react, it still happens, not as much as it used to. But it still happens more than I would like, um, and that's okay. Because, like, you know, because what happens is it arises, and almost immediately, I'm aware of it, and I can apologize, and I can work with it, and you know, it's not debilitating. But it's still there. You know, I didn't choose to have that pattern. If I if I did, I wouldn't have it, right? And so I think we can just kind of work with what is in the way that's most effective and most loving, and, and you know, most connected. And, and that's really, you know, enough. And you might say, well, that's not good enough. Okay, you can say that, but how's that going to help you? <laughs> you know, if what you're really saying is, but no, it's really, really, really important to me to try to change this personality trait. Okay, great. Then try, try as much as you can. You know, if you really think that there is some movement to be had, you can try to make the change, give yourself support and encouragement. Um, but again, the bottom line always needs to be that you're still an, a worthy human being exactly as you are, you know, to be that compassionate mess. And, and really, once you change your goal to being a compassionate mess, everything changes. You know, you, the whole structure of it changes. And people are afraid if I'm, if I, if my goal is to become a compassionate mess, then I'll be more of a mess than I am now. It's actually <laughs> it's the exact opposite. You know, the more you can be compassionate with the mess you are, actually the easier it becomes to make changes because we aren't fighting things, we aren't resisting things, we feel safer, we feel calmer as we make those changes, we're more supported. I mean, I'm sorry, but shame and self-criticism are lousy foundations on which to make change. They kind of work, but they have so many unintended consequences like anxiety and you know, fear of failure and just kind of depressing you that it's, it's, you know, it's, it's not working very well. So, yeah. Well, it's funny because it just kind of reminds me, you know, anytime I talk to people in your position, I ask them, you know, like psychologists in particular, like, are you immune to all the things that you help other people with? And I'm like, no, absolutely not. No, that's why I'm glad I'm a self-compassion teacher, not a mindfulness teacher, because <laughs> my mindfulness <laughs> is kind of spotty. You know, I can be mindful and I meditate, but in the moment, because of my reactive personality, you know, the mindfulness goes out the window, but it does come up very quickly afterward, you know, and, and the way I relate to it. Again, that's the thing. It's not, it's still there, but it's not debilitating. It's okay. I can work with it. You know, everything becomes workable with self-compassion and mindfulness. Um, but I'm still a mess and that's okay. Cause everyone's okay. I'm, I'm perfectly imperfect, you know? <laughs> yeah. I love that. Uh, well, I think that's a beautiful place to wrap up our conversation. So I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews. The unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Unmistakable. Do you mind if you define what you mean by what you mean? Unmistakable yeah. So that- yeah, when you, when you write a book, you have to define it. Uh, so yeah. I define it as something so distinctive that nobody else could have done it, but you, that it's immediately recognized as your work or an expression of who you are. It's so interesting. So what is it that makes someone or someone's work unmistakable? Well, I mean, I think you've probably gotten this answer before. It just has to boil down to authenticity, right? So each individual is unique. Each individual has a 
particular set of, you know, his, their history and their influences and genetics and socialization and culture and all those things. And I think um, when people are fully, completely authentic, and by the way, self-compassion is strongly linked to authenticity, it really helps you to be who you really are. When you express yourself in a completely authentic way, then I think it's unmistakably yours. I think when you try to create something that's going to please other people or that's based on what you think is good, based on what other people have done, then it, it might end up being more derivative. Amazing. Well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your wisdom and your story with our listeners. Um, this is, I'm sure, going to help a lot of people. Uh, where can people find out more about you, your work, your books, and everything else that you're up to? Yeah, well, the easiest way to find me is just to Google self-compassion, the word. You'll come to my website, and I've got, um, if you're a science nerd, I've got you know hundreds and hundreds of research articles organized by category. You can test your own self-compassion level. I have guided meditations, I have exercises, I have um, you know links to how to get self-compassion training. And there's just a lot of free information there and it's a, it's a good place to start. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.